God, we recognize that, that right now, the, the creator of all things, the creator who made us to be in relationship with you is speaking to us. And so, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. God, we don't want to just hear these words as we hear any other word, Lord, but we also want to be transformed by them. And so we ask that you would do that this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I am on staff at Christ City East Vancouver, and um, Brant has invited me to, to preach this morning, and so really, really grateful to be with you this morning. Um, I hope you know I have the, the privilege of, of working with Brant at the office and with Alvin and also with Doug and Jonathan, and you have amazing pastors, and it has really been a true joy to, to work with them, to, to see their love for the Lord, but also they are so proud of you. They speak so highly of you, and so it, it makes me really excited to be here. It, it also feels like a little bit of this daunting task, like someone's passed you their newborn baby, and it's like, don't break it. <laughs> but I know you don't just then grab that baby and hold it out here. You, you, you bring it in close. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. Let, let's just be honest with each other, and, and let's see what God has to say to us. As a church, we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And our, our kind of the way our, we've approached this so far is we've taken verse by verse, section by section. And we believe that's the best way to study the Bible. So we read things in context. We understand where the author is coming from. But, but this week, if you've been following along, you've noticed that we've actually skipped ahead a bunch of verses. If we would just be following our normal schedule, we'd be in the beginning of chapter 7, but we're beginning this week in, in verse 17. And I want to tell you why we've decided to do that as a church. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to this church in Corinth, is telling them that upon becoming a Christian, their life is going to be transformed. In many ways, it will look nothing like the life they had in the past, and so they then are beginning to wonder as well, well, how does my newfound identity in Christ transform my relationships? And so they want to know, look, Paul, if I'm married and now I'm a Christian, does that mean I should divorce my wife or my husband? Should, should, should we stop having sex? And Paul says, no beginning of chapter 7, stay together. Actually, he says, verse 5, do not deprive each other. I know many of you married couples were really looking forward to that verse this week. He says to the, to the married person who's now married to an unbeliever, what if one, only one person in the relationship has become a Christian? Should, does that mean I should divorce my unbelieving spouse? And again, Paul says, no, remain as you are the believer should not initiate a divorce. He'll speak to the single person. Do, do I need to be married then in order for my life to have significance, to rightly serve the Lord? The, the Lord? And, and again, Paul will say, no, stay as you are. And, and that principle to, to stay as you are, the, the principle that, this is what I think God's word is for us this morning, that you can serve God in any and all circumstances. That principle that you can serve God in any and all of your circumstances is found in our section this morning. 
And so we jumped ahead because we want to look at that principle, and then we're going to then work backwards and apply it to all our other spheres of relationship. So this morning, I want to see our principle, and I want to look at it through particularly the lens of work. For the past few centuries, there's been, there's been quite a major shift in our society's understanding of work. In the past, work was almost seen, and this is especially in the medieval era, as almost a necessary evil. I have to do it because I need to provide for my family, but my work was really not of any significance. There, there was the work of the religious class, the, the priests and the nuns and the monks and the, and the work they did. Well, that was true work, but my work is just, well, it's a necessary evil. It barely has no value. It's unimportant and insignificant. Well, then we, we, we fast forward today, and the pendulum has actually swung quite far in the opposite direction. And now you, in many ways, are what you do. Your, your work is your newfound identity. It determines your self-worth and how you view yourself. And so there's actually, in our society, a very uh, a frequent turnover in jobs. In the year 2013, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States said that uh, the average person changes jobs every 4.4 years. For the youngest of those in the labor force, they change jobs about half that time. In about every two years, they're changing jobs. And I think the reason that's the case is because what we've done is we've conflated um, our identity with our work. They've become, in many ways, one. And so, look, I, I don't feel fulfilled. Well, it, it must be my job. So I, I probably should, should find another job. We're, we're constantly updating our LinkedIn profiles, hoping that someday someone will recognize my value and what I can actually contribute into this world. And so we've, we've, we've basically said, I am what I do. And that, I think, in many ways has broken us and, and, and crushed us. There, the, in the movie, The Chariots of Fire, uh, the movie follows two sprinters in the 1924 Olympics. And one of the runners, who's kind of this counter-hero or this antagonist, he, he says this about his sprinting life. I quote, Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Ten lonely seconds to, to justify who I am in this world. Maybe it's 60 lonely hours at work to justify your existence in this world. And so previously, if work was insignificant and superfluous, and now it's all-consuming identity forming, the gospel, the Bible actually says, actually, there's a third way. Work can be freeing and also valuable. It can be a free activity by which we please God. Work is a free activity by which we please God. And so I want to look at this under three headings. I want us to understand our calling. I want us to understand our contribution. And then lastly, I want to look at our condition. So first, look at, look at our calling. Th this section from verses 17 to 24 is broken up like a club sandwich, or if it's a cheat day, like a Big Mac. 
there, there's, these, there's these three ideas that kind of act as the, or this one idea that act as these three loaves of bread, and they kind of hold the ideas together. We see them in verses 17, 20, and 24. Verse 17 says this. Hear, hear this refrain. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The key to understanding our section is to understand those verses and specifically to understand that word calling or called. That word calling or called is used nine times in our section. And the difficulty around this is that in the Bible, that word calling can actually have three different types of meaning. So let, let me walk you through those different types of calling. The first calling that we find in the Bible is a general call. It's a general call. It's an invitation to all people anywhere and everywhere to come and recognize God as king. So in the book of Matthew, we, we read this. Matthew 22 verse 14 says, For many were called, but listen, few are chosen. So there's a type of calling that actually invites you to make God as king, but does not actually bring you to a place of submission where you make God your king. It's a general call. It's a, it's a general invitation. We actually don't see that type of calling in our passage this morning. The second type of calling we see in the Bible is a calling we speak of quite often in our day-to-day -day language. We, we, we say, I am called to do such and such. It's a calling, we say, of what we're going to spend our time doing. It's a vocational call. So we, we see this in our section, actually, but it's, it's a word that's hidden from us. So if you look at verse 20, it says this. Each one should remain in the condition. That word condition, though, is actually literally translated the word calling. So if you Writing notes in your Bible, circle that word right beside it, calling, because it should read this. Each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. And because this is a true calling of the Lord, it means that our work is important. It's, it's not of ultimate significance, but it is of great value still. We'll, we'll look at that later, but, but you need to know something. That type of calling in our passage is only spoken of one time. The eight other times in our passage, it refers to this third type of calling. It's the effectual call. The effectual call. So at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, I think we hear it most clearly. It goes like this. Verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 23 says, But we preach Christ cru crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This effectual call is an irresistible call of God. It's what made us belong to 
Jesus. It's what made us see that Jesus is, is more precious than anything else that this world has to offer. So I once used to try to fill this void in my life with, with hobbies and relationships and pornography and substances and, and, and just being productive. And then all of a sudden, God calls to me and I see that everything else pales in comparison to that Lord. That if, if I could only have Jesus, I could have anything, I would have everything more than I wanted in this world. That, that he is greater than anything else. I would sell all that I have, just give me Jesus. That's the calling that, that is spoken of here. It helps us see that Jesus is greater than anything else. But that calling doesn't just show us that Jesus is great. It also shows us who we really are. In that moment when Jesus calls us, we realize that not only are we unable to live up to our own expectations for ourselves, we can't live up to God's either. We fail him. Actually, we, we realize we've been living in rebellion against him. We've been living in rebellion against the one who made us and wants to be in relationship with us. And so because of that, we, our penalty, the, the, the thing we justly deserve is, is death and everlasting torment. And so I see this divide. I see the greatness of Jesus and I see the depravity of my sin. And the moment he calls to me, the only hope I have is to call back to him and says, okay, Jesus, then if I'm going to be yours, you have to come to me. Come to me, Jesus. You have to be the one to fix me. You have to be the one to pay the penalty that I deserve. And that's what Paul says Jesus does. He says in, in, in verse 23, you were bought with a price. He calls to you and he says, I will pay the price also on your behalf. Let me live the life that you should have lived. And let me die the death that you deserve to die. Trust in me, he says. The infinitely perfect one, the, the blood of the only sinless one shed on our behalf so that we could belong to him. And we say, yes, God, I am yours. That's the irresistible call that happens in our life. The effectual call that Paul says happens here in Corinth. And he says, look, if that's true then, if, if you could just understand how much God really loves you, that, that he would do that for you, then that would radically transform your vocational call. So let, let's look at that vocational call. Our second point is this, understanding our con contribution. What, what does our work really then contribute to what Jesus has done for us? L look at verse 17 and following again. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. 
So let's let let's let's talk about this. Every preacher's favorite topic: circumcision. Um, circumcision was was something God instructed His chosen people, the the nation of Israel, to do. It, it was to be a sign that they belonged to Him. But through the act of circumcision, one was in many ways also acting out the consequences of what would happen if you betrayed God and abandoned him as well. The idea is that if, if you walk away from the Lord, if you, if you break his covenant relationship with you, if you fail to uphold your end of the deal, so to speak, then your just penalty would be bloody and gory and you'd be cut off. And so this was, for, this was for every single male Jew. If you belong to the covenant people of God, you would be circumcised. And, and now Paul says something in verse 18. He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? So, so Jesus comes, he, he gives an effectual call to a, a former Jew who then now trusts in Jesus, the, the true Messiah, and then Paul says, look, you should not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Now, you're probably wondering, is that even possible? The answer is yes, it is. The, the medical procedure was called an epispasm. I think it's very aptly named. Brandt said to not give any diagrams, but, but, but the... The, the, the bigger question for us is, is this. I think this is a, a serious question. Is why would you ever want to actually do that? Like, like think about it. This is the first century. We, we don't have the, the anesthetic that we have today. We don't have the antibiotics that we have today. Like, this is a, this is a serious and dangerous decision, a, a painful decision. Why am I saying, why would I do that? I think there's really, um, I think the reason is this. In Corinth, there were two main areas where the majority of business deals took place. If you were a businessman, especially, you would conduct business in the gymnasia and in the bathhouses. And both of those areas, the, the, the formal attire was no attire. And so if you're a Jew and you're conducting business in that area, it would be very obvious to everyone that you stood out. They would immediately understand and see who you were. And you need to know something. Jews were not very well regarded in that time. Like, like there was a lot of difficulty for Jews in, in, in Corinth. And, and so for you to make a business deal with a, a Jew would in many ways possibly hinder your business going forward. And so a, a Jew is feeling that. Like, I'm struggling in this world. I'm struggling to make it. And if God really wants me, maybe I need to be of value. Maybe I need to, to show him my true worth. Maybe I need to prove myself. And so I'm going to undo the marks of circumcision. But, but look at what Paul says in verse 19. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Do you see how freeing that is, Paul says? 
that, that your bank account, your position in life, your social status doesn't ultimately determine your worth before God. You, you don't have to make it in the eyes of this world to, to make it in the eyes of God. Someone, someone once says, trying to earn your worth is like rearranging deck chairs on a sinking Titanic. It's just a frantic exercise that only produces anxiety. What are you doing arranging the deck chairs? Jump on the lifeboat that is Jesus. So God says, look, my call goes out. It changes lives irrespective of your job title. Circumcision counts for nothing, and uncircumcision doesn't count for anything either. Let me, let me read you this quote by Tim Keller. He says this, The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work. For we are already proven and secure. It also frees us from a condescending attitude toward less sophisticated labor and from envy over more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love the God who saved us freely and by extension, a way to love our neighbor. Let me just ask us, I think this is maybe a good, a good place to do this. Um, are you ever tempted to cover up your identity in Christ because it would help you make it? We, 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 we feel like maybe opportunities arise in our workplace to, to share who we are, but, but we, we shut our mouths because we're, we're worried how it will affect us. We're worried if we'll still be liked. We worry it will stop us from closing the business deal. Maybe we, we hide our convictions at school, we, we, right? We, we believe certain things about who God is and, and who we are as Christians and the way we ought to live in this world, but we, we don't express that on our university campuses. No way. That, that'd be suicide. Or we laugh maybe at crude jokes on the job site that we actually don't find funny, but, but we want to fit in with all the other guys or girls. We, we want to be liked. We hope maybe it'll lead to that promotion in the end eventually. God says, look, verse 19 again, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but, Paul says, keep the commandments of God. Obey God and trust him to take care of you. You're already his. So, moving on. If uncircumcision, then, is trying to make it in this world, then circumcision is the idea that maybe I have to look a certain way to earn God's favor. The, the second half of verse 18 says this, Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. See, see the temptation to believe, if, if you are a Greek now, who's encountered Christ, and you, you know that the, the people of God used to be the Jews, the, the temptation to believe is that maybe I need to look like them in order to fit in. Maybe I have to, in many ways, become like a Jew in order to, to secure God's blessing in my life. But, but Paul says, look, God called you when you were uncircumcised. And so, look, you don't have to look like them. 
I think one of the most devastating concepts that have been spread to this world from North America is that to be a Christian it means to look like a North American. That, that idea has gone out to the corners of this world and it is entirely untrue. I'm so glad that right now, the, the people who are coming to Christ in droves are, are coming from the global south, from Africa, fr from China, from, from places that look nothing like us here in North America. And that is so God-glorifying because it shows that the grace and power of God extends far beyond any ethnic barrier. He, he's greater than any one race he saves not only Jews, Paul says, he saves Greeks. He saves people from every race. And so maybe, maybe you've walked into this space. Maybe you're new. You're coming here and, and you look around and in many ways you go, I don't know if I fit in here. <laughs> the truth is you, you may not fit in, but it does not mean you cannot belong. Because God's aim is to save a people as diverse as possible. He says it's going to be what gives him the most glory in the end. Now, if our work then does not determine God's call on our life, that does not mean, Paul says, work is unimportant. So pick it up in verse 20. Paul says this, Each one should remain in the calling, remember, in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, when Paul here is speaking about slavery and saying remain as you are, he's not trying to condone slavery. He, he's saying a, a, a greater principle. The, the principle is this. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Whether you're free or you're a slave, do, do it for the Lord. I, I think in our translation, the, the emphasis is a little bit unclear. So, so I, I'm going to put this translation up on the screen. I, I think this is maybe a helpful way of understanding the, what Paul is trying to say here. He says this. If... When God called you, you were a slave. Do not let it worry you. Even if you can gain your freedom. So look, even if you can gain your freedom, fine. Make use of your present condition now more than ever. I think some of us might have this idea that, you know, just around the corner, in, in the next season of life, that, that's really going to be the moment I begin to serve the Lord. Like, like right now, I'm not quite, I don't have the time, I don't have the circumstances, I don't have the resources to serve the Lord, but, but just around the corner, don't worry, I have a plan of how I'm going to get there. And when I arrive, when I become that person that I really want to be, th then I'll be able to, to serve the Lord. Then I'll be able to bring the Lord glory. And truthfully, that's, a, that's something the devil wants you to believe. 
C.S. Lewis wrote a number of different things. One of his most fascinating works for me is something he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. These are, uh, this book is a collection of fictitious letters that a senior demon writes to a, an underling demon. It's his, it's his demon prodigy. And so listen to, to what this senior demon says his strategy ought to be. This is, this is how we're going to ruin Christians, okay? He says this. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Let me say it again. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as more fuel wherewith to keep the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. He says, look, you have been gifted a position right now. And you've been given many talents right now to use in, in this situation in your life. Stop pursuing the rainbow's end and thinking once you get there, you'll serve the Lord. You think you're a student. And you think, okay, when, when I graduate and I enter the workforce, then I'll be able to witness to those individuals around me. It's untrue. You're working right now, and you think, when I'm retired, th then I'll have the time. Th then I'll have the, 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 the free abilities to, to, to serve the Lord in, in my retired life. It's untrue. You might be renting a house right now and thinking, well, only when I, when I can buy a house, then I can be hospitable. You think you're single, and you have to be married in order to serve the Lord. It's completely untrue. You might be married and thinking, okay, when I have children, that's when I'll be able to raise up and train the next generation. It's untrue. Now, look, Paul's not saying you can't ever change what you do. If that was the case, fishermen couldn't become apostles. Paul's saying, look, no, no, no. Right now, though, you are of significance and value. What you do has value right here, right now. Make use of your present circumstances. I think there's two reasons why he does this. He says we can do, do this, okay? He says, look, God put you there. God put you there. He, he says in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Ver, ver, verse 20, again, remember, each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. God's not... God's not surprised about where you are at right now. He's not like looking at you and being like, oh my goodness. Uh, didn't you, don't you know you were supposed to be in finance and you're still working in that, that restaurant job? Like, oh, what are we going to do with this, Holy Spirit? He's, that, that, Jesus is not fretting about where you're at. He actually says, all things are under my control, and I've actually assigned you to be here. He says, I, I, I think there's people around you who, who need to, to know about Jesus, uh, where you're at. He says, I want to do something in you. I want to teach you something, and you need to be where you're at right now for me to teach you those things. So, so God puts you there so you can serve him there. Secondly, and this is so good, we, we don't work ultimately for man. We work for the Lord. Verse 22 and 23 says again, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. 
Likewise, he who was free when is called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. You're bought with a price. So you, you have a boss right now, but you actually have a greater boss. It's God. You have no boss right now. You're your own boss. Paul says, no, you also actually have a boss. God's your boss too. And so that changes everything we do. It gives purpose to everything we do because we do it for the Lord. We do it to bring him praise and honor. We, we want to work with the energy that he supplies. We want to fill, fulfill his mandate to exercise dominion over this world and bring renewal in every single nook and cranny. So you work for the Lord. There's no such thing as a menial task. Angela Duckworth, she's a psychologist. She, she says this. Three bricklayers, this is a parable, I think, for us. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I'm laying bricks. The second says, I'm building a church. And the third says, I'm building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. The third has a calling. God has called you. You're an employee of the great king. You don't have to earn God's favor, but you can certainly please him. So let me end. Let me end with, I think, where Paul ends. He says this in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Our third point is understanding our condition, and I think this will really change everything we do. Th those two words at the end have been really sweet to me this week. Those words, with God, have been my lifeboat this week. This has been a hard week. But those two words have, have honestly made this week very sweet. I actually think it's because my week is, has been hard and that I've recognized that, look, I am with God and that God is with me, that my week has actually been so profoundly good for my soul. Those two words, with God, have, have changed my prayer life this week. It's interesting just how having this mental shift between, God, will you be with me as I go to work today? Will you be with me as I serve my family today? To God, will you be with me as we go to work today? God, God, God help me as we serve my family today. He, he, he's with you. And so let me just give you some examples of how this really could, could change the way we approach our weeks ahead. Maybe, maybe you're needing to make a big decision, and it's going to affect a, a lot of people. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the employees under you. You need to know that you're not making that decision alone. God's making that decision with you, and you're breaking that news, and, and, and Jesus is standing right there with you. Maybe you feel exhausted and you just want to check out and veg and you don't know how you're going to get through the week ahead. It just seems like a daunting task. God says, I'm with you. Think of me like your coworker. I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the slack. Let, let me carry you along. Maybe you feel like your work is trivial. You don't really know what, what you're doing. What's the big deal? You feel bored. Talk to God. He's, he's right there wanting to, to speak with you and commune with you. Maybe you've been cleaning up macaroni all week, like five times. 
you're on your knees because the only thing your kids will eat and they still spill it all over the floor, Jesus is right there with you as you're on your knees cleaning up that macaroni. You didn't get that promotion. Jesus didn't get that promotion either because he's with you. Or you nailed it. And Jesus is celebrating with you. All we do, we do it with God and we do it for God. So I opened with a a Harold Abrams quote. He said this, let me remind you. 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Listen to the hero's claim. He was a follower of the Lord and he said this. I run to glorify God. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Let me pray. God, work is a big part of our life. Um, We spend thousands of hours doing it, and we are so grateful that you have redeemed it. God, there's nothing that we do that is unimportant to you. And God, we are so thankful that you are there with us as we do it. God, I pray, help us to not wrap up our identity in what we do, but instead let us look to Jesus who called us even though we were far, far away and who paid the price so that we might belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.